ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Hey, morning, everyone. Is this on? Is this working? Okay, cool. Good, good. All right, well, I hope you've all had a restful and a delicious Thanksgiving. Nice, nice. All right, someone did. Cool. Okay, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Frank, and uh, my wife's name is Duen. She's over there. Hey, Duen. Do I? Should I talk? Okay. (laughs) Um, okay, so fun fact about us is we just had a baby, yeah. Okay, so there's Layla. She's she just turned five months a week ago. So, thanks. I just I just want an excuse to show baby photos. You know that's you'll understand if you ever become a parent. But okay, so Duan and I we've been volunteering at the MSU venue since about 2014. So, gosh, a little over seven years now. And I have to say, in all our years here. We've never had a series quite like this Roman series. And we've never spent so long, like over a year, right, on just one book of the Bible. But now this is it. Today is the day that we finally finish. And I figured since this is the last week, you know, it's a perfect time to take a step back and look at the big picture and ask ourselves, what is Romans as a whole about, right? Now, if you've been in church for a while, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, Romans is about the gospel. And that's true, and that's also true of the whole Bible, because every part of the Bible, we believe, is about the good news of Jesus somehow, right? So, I think we can get a little more specific. And to do that, I want to share a little tip with you that I have found very helpful in my personal study. And that's this, that Paul's introductions and his conclusions they often contain the main ideas of the letter as a whole. It's a little like the papers we write for school. Who's had to write a paper? Probably all of us, right? You've got an introduction, you've got to introduce some key points. Then you have the body, the main body of your paper, you develop your points, you have a conclusion where you restate your key points, right? Well, Paul often does something very similar. So that means if we can understand what he's getting at in his intro and understand his conclusion, then we'll have a pretty good idea of what the whole thing is about. So let me show you what I mean. Uh, Let's throw back to the very first week of this series, and let's read the first few verses of Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is like the intro to Romans, right? And now we're gonna read the conclusion of Romans, the last few verses and uh, there's going to be some keywords highlighted that are shared between Romans 1 and Romans 16. So here it is. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, 
and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay, so there we go, right? The key words I had highlighted were gospel, Jesus Christ, scripture, obedience of faith, and Gentiles. So those are Paul's main ideas. Those are the main themes of Romans as a whole. Romans is about a gospel, which means good news, right? And this good news is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for us and now reigns as Lord and King. And that probably sounds pretty familiar if you've been in church for a while, but I want to point out something about when Paul uses the word scripture. What does he mean when he says scripture? Well, he means the Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament is still a work in progress at this point. So Paul is talking about the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And yet he says these Jewish scriptures have good news for Gentiles, for non-Jewish people. So that means the good news is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. It's for everyone, no matter who we are. And finally, what does the good news produce? That phrase, obedience of faith, okay? Obedience of faith. So it's not just beliefs, right? Not doctrines, not theories, not stuff in your head. Obedience, practical, concrete changes in our lives. That is what the gospel produces. So then, based on our analysis of the intro and conclusion, I would say this. Romans, as a whole, is about how the good news of Jesus brings all peoples together, no matter who we are, for the sake of obedience to God. And now let me be clear. I am not saying that this is the only way to think about Romans, because it's a long letter. It's pretty dense. So people have been studying this letter for centuries, right? But this way specifically, I have, to say, I have to say, it's helped me understand, again, the letter as a whole, right? It's helped me make sense of how all these different pieces fit together, okay? It's helped me see how all the theology and all the ethics, it's actually two sides of the same coin, right? And I think it makes sense if you think about, like, the situation that Paul is addressing. If you think back to past sermons in the series, Right? We talked about conflict between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. So then, it makes sense, I think, that Paul would want to write about how the gospel brings these two parties together. And isn't this the same problem we deal with today? Not, not Jewish versus Gentile Christians specifically, but don't we have divisions? Don't we have people in church, we have groups that don't like each other. We have groups that don't understand each other. Well, Romans is still relevant to us then because Romans helps us answer this question. What does it take for Christians who differ to live together in peace? So I think Romans 16 uh, shows us three different ways that we're going to talk about. And since we've already started at the end, let's just keep working our way backwards. So rewind a bit to verses 19 through 20. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. All right, so 
what is this about being wise about good? Right? It's maybe a little, kind of a strange wording might sound like that to our ears. But I think it makes a little more sense if we look at the Greek word that's translated wise. And that word is sophos, right? Sophos, okay. So you see the English translation means wise, right? But also means expert or skilled. It kind of makes sense, right, if you think about it. Because what does a wise person have? Skills, right? Life skills. A wise person is good at life. A wise person skillfully navigates all the challenges that we face in this life. So I think this idea of skillfulness gives us a helpful perspective on this verse. So we're going to pull the verse back up, but this time I'm going to replace the word wise with the word skillful, and its opposite, innocent, with unskilled. And let's see how it reads there. <clears throat> the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be skillful about what is good and yet unskilled about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Okay, so have you ever thought about good and evil as skills? Right? Good and evil as skills, as things that you can get good at. Well, consider lying. You know, it actually takes skill to be a good liar, to lie successfully, right? You've got to know how to cover your tracks. If people ask you hard questions, you've got to learn how to dodge the questions, avoid it, change the topic, talk without actually saying anything, right? Lying is not easy. Like, it takes time and practice to get good at it. It's a skill. But sadly, some people, they get so good at it that it becomes easy to lie. And then they don't know how to tell the truth anymore. Those people have become skilled about evil and unskilled about good. But by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, we can turn that around. <laughs> yes, it is possible to turn that around. We can practice good. We can become skilled at it. To a degree, it can actually get easier. In Christ, we can get good at good and be bad at evil. And now, you can apply that to yourself in your personal walk with God, but I think Paul is mainly thinking about the community. Because remember, he's writing to a community of people with communal problems, right? There's conflict between two groups, a lack of peace. So I think that's why he emphasizes that God is a God of peace here. And that brings me back to the question we're asking today. What does it take for Christians who differ to live together in peace? Well, the first thing I would say is we must grow skillful in the things that lead to peace. And what are those things? Well, here are a few I can think of. Uh, this, this is partly based on past sermons in this series, so maybe this sounds familiar. And um, This is also stuff that I've thought about, too. So here we go. Examples are not judging others, not fighting over things that don't matter, not assuming things about others, listening before speaking, okay? recognizing our blind spots, and then thinking from other people's perspectives. Right? Now, these are the things that we need to get good at if we want to have a community that lives together in peace. And if you're thinking, whoa, I'm not good at any of that, don't be discouraged. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not that good at it either. 
But that's the thing. We can take courage and encouragement because these are skills. And if they're skills, that means with time and practice, we can get better at them. With practice and as the Spirit works in all of us, we can get good at these things. Okay, so that's the first of our three things. For the second thing, I want to look at verses 16 through 17. So rewriting again. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Now we should realize something. When Paul says, contrary to what you have learned, he's not necessarily talking about what you and I have learned. He's talking about what these first-century Roman Christians learned. He's talking about the kind of stuff that's in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the rule of faith. Now, these are statements of faith that come to us from the earliest centuries of the Christian church. Stuff like, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He was crucified and died, but on the third day he rose again and ascended to heaven, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. Now, that was a paraphrase of parts of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, maybe that sounds familiar to you if you've ever been in churches where like, people recite this on Sunday morning. If you are, you're in good company. Because these are the beliefs that all Christians in all times and places have shared. And yet, throughout our history, we have tended to add extra things on top of this and then divide over them. The Eastern Orthodox and the Western churches divided over the authority of the Pope. And then within the Western church, Protestants and Roman Catholics, we divided again over doctrines of justification. And then over here in Protestantism, which is where we are, we've divided over the centuries over things like communion, baptism, the Holy Spirit, predestination, the role of women, and it just never ends. Now, I'm not saying that these things don't matter, and I am not saying that there isn't necessarily a right and a wrong in some of these things. But if we are not careful, we're going to make our definition of good Christian so narrow that we are the only ones who meet the definition. If we're not careful, we're going to think that we are the best Christians in the entire history of the world. And if that is not divisive, I don't know what is. But here's the thing, right? Division sells, right? Division is profitable. As it says here, division feeds the appetite of the dividers. Because if, if these people can convince you that your faith in Jesus isn't complete, you need something extra, and they're the only ones who have it. Yeah? If they can convince you that they are the only good Christians and that they're right about everything, then you'll buy their books, right? You'll consume their content. You'll go to their conferences. You'll donate to their organizations. And then they keep you with smooth talk and flattering words. Because if you fully buy in, they'll make you feel good about it. They'll make you feel real good. They'll make you feel like one of the good guys. Like, you're part of the remnant. 
You are one of the faithful few who hasn't compromised. Everyone else has compromised, but not us, not you. We are the real Christians, and you're a real Christian if you stick with us. But, brothers and sisters, if we really believe that God is at work in this world, then we have to believe that he is working through all Christians in all our diversity, okay? We can't be so narrow about our definitions. We cannot say that false teaching is anything I don't agree with, right? We cannot make ourselves the standard of what a good Christian is. Remember what I said earlier, okay? We all have blind spots, right? There are things that we can't see, and we can't see that we can't see them, which is why the world's Christians need each other. We need each other. We need to dialogue and read the Bible together across time, across space, and across the aisle. So what does it take for Christians who differ to live together in peace? Number two, we must not be deceived into thinking that we are the only good Christians and everyone else is bad, right? Okay, so that's two out of three. And I'm going to tell you the third one now, and then we're going to uh, explain it. So the third thing is, we must be a community where no group is marginalized and where outsiders become insiders. Okay? Now, to show you what I mean about number three, we're going to look at the best part of Romans 16, the names. Hey, yes. No, but no, I'm serious. The names, right? The part where Paul says, hi, you, hi, you, right? I know we maybe will be tempted to skip over this, but this part, there's, there's solid gold in here, y'all, if we're willing to dig for it. So let's dig. Now, first, some background. You have to understand the power dynamics of the Roman Empire and their society. The most powerful people are male Roman citizens. There were laws of the empire that kept them in authority over particularly women and slaves. Slaves were legally property, not people. And women couldn't hold office. So at every level of Roman society, male Roman citizens were prominent. They were on top. They made all the decisions. Male citizens were the insiders, and everyone else was an outsider. Male citizens had all the power and the privilege, while women, slaves, and everyone else was marginalized, pushed to the side. But it was not this way in the church, and we know that because of the names. Romans 16.1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Centria. Now, New Testament scholars agree that Phoebe was Paul's letter carrier to the Romans. You see, in the Roman Empire, there's no postal service, right? So if you want to mail a letter, you've got to give your letter to a carrier. The carrier has to physically cross land and sea to deliver it to the recipients. So right away, this fact tells us something very important. Paul trusted women. Paul trusted his sister in Christ to get the job done. Moreover, letter carriers usually read the letter out loud to the recipients. It was a kind of public speaking. So, 
That means the carrier has to know the contents of this letter inside and out so that they can read it effectively. And of course, if the recipients have questions, they're going to have to ask the carrier. In effect, the letter carrier was the representative of the sender. So that means Paul was totally comfortable with Phoebe, a woman, being his representative to the Romans. Paul was happy to have the Romans hear his words, but in Phoebe's voice. Do you see how radically countercultural Paul was? If he wanted credibility in the eyes of the Roman world, he would have sent a man, right? But no, he sent Phoebe, a woman. Why? Because the church should not run like the world. The church should be different. Again, we must be a community where no group is marginalized and where outsiders become insiders. Here's another interesting observation. So Paul greets 26 people here, and nine of them are women. Yet, even though women are the minority, right, nine out of 26, Paul consistently praises the women more highly than the men. Let me show you what I mean. There are four women that Paul says worked hard, right? These are Mary, Trophina, Trophosa, and Persis. But interestingly, Paul never says that any of the men worked hard. <laughs> yeah. Now, does that mean all the men were lazy? Uh, not, I don't know, maybe, but prob probably not. But I think Paul was acknowledging something, right? He was acknowledging that in the Roman world, to get anything done, women have to work harder than the men because they face so many obstacles that the men never had to face, right? It was hard to get an education. They're shut out of public life. There's so many things that Roman women were not allowed to do. But in the church, they were prominent, okay? And they worked hard in the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, we have a saying in Chinese, okay? It's called xinkula, xinkula, all right? Now, the most basic meaning of it is you worked hard, but it's actually quite a versatile phrase, okay? It's, it's uh, one of the main uses is a kind of thank you. But it's a thank you that specifically acknowledges the other person's hard work, labor, suffering, sacrifice. So for example, did you spend all day on Thanksgiving, and maybe even the day before, all day cooking for your friends or your family? Chinese people would say to you, Xinkula, okay? Thank you for your hard work. There's a whole team that makes this uh, service possible, right? There's set up and tear down, there's welcome, and I could go on. They get here before everyone else, and they leave after everyone else goes home. Chinese people would say to you, Xinkula, okay? Thank you for your labor, week in and week out. If you have parents that immigrated to this country, okay, and they left everything behind, everyone they knew and loved to endure hardship and work long hours and face discrimination just so that they could give you a better life, if you're Chinese, you would say to them, Xinkula, okay, thank you for your sacrifice. So that's what Xinkula means. And I think if Paul spoke Chinese, he would have said to these women, Xinkula, okay? So I do the same. Sisters, Sinkula, Sinkula, Sinkula. It's already hard being a woman in this world. 
And if we're honest, sometimes it's also hard being a woman in church. But thank you. Thank you for your hard work. Thank you. Because we wouldn't be here without you. We literally could not do this without you. We need you. So thank you. Thank you. Shinkula. Okay, here's another thing we learned from these names. There were a lot of slaves and former slaves in the Roman church. And we know that because in ancient Rome, your name reflects your status and your social class. Slaves had slave names. And even if they got their freedom, their names told the story about their past slavery. So based on an analysis of the names, we can see these are all the likely slaves and former slaves. And if you count it all up, it's 13. Now think about that. 13 out of 26, right? That's half. As many... Okay, if, if the names here reflect the demographics of the church as a whole, right? Now we're talking half of the church, fully half of the Roman church came from the absolute bottom of Roman society. The absolute bottom. But in the church, they were equals. They were equals. In the church, they had dignity and honor. Have you ever wondered why Paul doesn't call for the abolition of slavery? Well, it's because the early Christians lived in an empire, not a democracy like we live in. So they couldn't change their laws. But they did resist slavery in the only way that they could, in their community life in the church. They lived in communities where your status didn't matter. In the church, slaves stopped being slaves because everyone was brother and sister. And at this point, I just have to lament. I lament the fact that we Americans in this country got this wrong for centuries. Centuries. How many millions of American Christians never questioned slavery? They even fought for slavery. How many millions of American Christians wanted to preserve segregation? How could it be that for centuries, we missed this crucial fact that the gospel demands that Christians live in communities where no one is marginalized, where there are no outsiders. The gospel demands this of us. The early church understood this, and that's why the church was so compelling to these women and to these slaves. That's why they flocked to the church, because they knew that in the church, they had value. In the church, they mattered. And by the way, we know for a fact that women and slaves flocked to the early church because we have written records. Here's a guy named Celsus writing in the second century, and he says, Christians show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, the dishonorable, and the stupid. Only slaves, women, and little children. You see that? Celsus noticed something. He noticed something funny about the church. He noticed that they were attracting people from the bottom of Roman society, and he criticized them for it. <laughs> He's like, what the heck is wrong with these Christians? What, why do they keep getting all these women and slaves? Where, where are the men? Where are the citizens? 
What Celsus didn't understand is that this is exactly what Christianity is supposed to be. This is exactly what Jesus wanted. Listen to what Jesus said when he began his public ministry. Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is good news for everyone, yes, but especially good news for the marginalized. It's especially good news for the poor, prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, is one of you. Jesus was poor. Jesus was part of an oppressed ethnic minority. (laughs) Do you feel rejected by the world? Jesus was rejected too. Do you lack dignity in the world? Well, Jesus lost his dignity too. Have you been abused and treated as if you weren't even human? Well, on the cross, Jesus died the most abusive and dehumanizing death that anyone could die. But Jesus is alive. He rose again. He is Lord and King, and he is going to establish a kingdom, and everyone's invited. And in that kingdom, Jesus will reign with love and justice, and no one will be marginalized anymore. No one will be an outsider. No one will be poor or oppressed. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, no, I've been an oppressor. I have dehumanized other humans. I have been comfortable because I was an insider, and I didn't care. I didn't care about the outsiders. I didn't care about the suffering of people who aren't like me. I have failed to love others as I love myself. Well, if that's you, I tell you that Jesus not only forgives, but he transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Never forget, Paul used to persecute Christians, right? And then he became one of them. He became one of us. He became a servant to the people that he once mistreated. This is what can happen by the power of Christ. And others of you might be thinking, well, what good is a future kingdom? Where's Jesus now? And the answer is, he's here. Right here in the church if, if, we live in the obedience of faith. If we start living as if the kingdom of God is already here. Because it is. Because Jesus said so. The kingdom of God is among us. That's what Jesus said. So, let's start living the kingdom life now. Let's live as a community where no one is an outsider. Yeah? By the way, also, you can be both of those things at the same time, right? You can be an insider in some ways and an outsider in others. You can be both a sinner and sinned against. But my point is, in the church, both of those things should be undone because the church is where sinners become servants, like Paul. The church is where outsiders become insiders, like the Roman women, like the Roman slaves. All right, so let's get specific, okay? What is our version today of the male Roman citizen? What gives you an advantage? 
Well, being a man, for one, let's be honest, that's been true pretty much of the entire history of civilization, right? Being a man is an advantage. Being a citizen, being white, having money, having connections, being beautiful according to the world's standards, being charming or charismatic. Now, it's not wrong to be any of these things, but my point is, the more of these things that you have, the more you have an advantage. The easier it is to get things your way, to get your voice heard, so my question is, does our church reflect the coming kingdom of God by being a place where these things aren't an advantage? Can we be a place where these things don't matter? Can we be a community where everyone can participate fully and exercise our God-given gifts? Is our church the kind of community that a modern-day Celsus would criticize because we're full of women and minorities? the poor and the powerless, the ugly, the awkward, and the uncool. One more time. These are the three things. What does it take for Christians who differ to live together in peace? Number one is we must grow skillful in the things that lead to peace. Number two is we must not be deceived into thinking that we are the only good Christians and number three is, we must be a community where no one is marginalized and where outsiders become insiders. So, let me end with one final appeal. If you feel like an outsider here, if you say to yourself, well, I, I don't know if I fit in at RIV, well, then you are exactly the person that we need. We don't need more of the same we need you to add what we don't have, to show us what we can't see. We need you to change us for the better so that in the future, no one ever feels like they don't fit in at RIV ever again. Amen. And now, okay, let's, if, if you choose to do that though, if you choose to dive in even though you don't feel like you fit in, it's probably gonna be hard. So let me say in advance, Sinkula, Sinkula, thank you, though, for your hard work because it's not in vain, because God sees it. Now, to the rest of us, I say this. If you are an insider, if you are part of Riv's inner circle, make it your mission to break that circle wide open. Make it your mission to be a welcomer. Bring people in. Talk to the people who are sitting by themselves. If, if we insiders are paying attention, no one should ever be sitting alone in church again. And let's not get comfortable with how things are right now. Because Lord willing, as God keeps bringing in more and more people, we're going to have to be willing to let our comfort be disrupted so that we can become a community that's comfortable for everyone. Then, together, we can be what the church was meant to be, a reflection of the coming kingdom of God, where everyone, no matter who we are, can worship God together. Let's pray. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done. Let the church become the community that you intended us to be. Lord Jesus, you died so that we can begin living the kingdom life now. So help us to do that.
pray in Jesus' name.